Well, last time, I, I think we sort of did a bit of a, a rushed flyby of Paul's first missionary journey. I think we uh, kind of dove in a little bit here and there to look at various um, key events, uh, key people, things that took place on that first journey that is covered for us in Acts chapters 13 and 14. So today, as we kind of move forward, I wanted to at least provide uh, just a quick uh, review of that journey, get the, the region and the geography kind of resettled in our minds, and, and just do a quick uh, a summary of, of that journey. Of course, as you might recall, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned and sent out from Antioch and the church there at Antioch, and they make their way, once they take off from the port at Seleucia, to the island of Cyprus, and they work their way across the island of Cyprus, and then they head over uh, to Perga, um, make their way up north and into Pisidian Antioch. And then they make several stops there in, in Asia Minor. The churches of Asia Minor are also referred to or known as the, the Galatian churches. And of course, this results in sort of a backtrack through several of those same churches, um, making their way back down to the coast at Perga, and then to uh, Italia, and then back to Antioch. This was uh, a tour or a missionary trip that covered about nine cities, a couple of stops in some of the cities and some of the regions. About five different regions were, were traversed during this, this journey. Um, estimates of anywhere from 1,300 to 1,500 plus miles were covered over about a two-year period of time. So this was a major investment of time, and if you just think about um, the nature of travel during this period of time, it was not easy. Um, even just uh, making it from one place to the next uh, could be arduous. Certainly it was made easier by um, the development of the Roman road system when they traveled by land. But nevertheless, uh, this was a, an arduous journey. Uh, we saw how on this particular journey, for example, in Cyprus, they had to confront demonic sorcery right out of the gate. Um, just a direct confrontation of, of the powers of hell itself um, right as they begin their journey. And we see how they, they lost a fellow worker when uh, John Mark departed from the journey once they crossed over to Perga. Um, and that ultimately resulted in a bit of a dispute uh, on the second missionary journey between Paul and Barnabas that we'll look at down the road. But certainly we, we know from what we see in that dispute that takes place uh, at the beginning of the second missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas separate over this, this departure of John Mark on this first missionary journey that this had to have been a pretty heartbreaking uh, and discouraging um, time and, and moment for, for them uh, in this journey. We saw how they were met with resistance and reception from both Jews and Gentiles alike um, in the places that they went, in Antioch and Pisidia in particular, in Iconium. Um, again, resistance and reception. And, um, and, and this was sort of the common theme in every stop, really, on, on the missionary travels of Paul and his traveling companions, where there was the gospel was fruitful, but the resistance was also pronounced, and more pronounced at times than others. Uh, They made their way to Lystra, and in Lystra they were both worshipped as gods, and Paul was actually stoned almost to death in that same town. So that was quite an adventure where they they healed someone, and 
the Gentile uh, idol-worshipping pagans that were there thought that they were the embodiment of Zeus and Hermes and began uh, sort of a worship and sacrificial worship process uh, in, in, in thinking that these were two uh, embodiments of the gods. Um, but the Jews obviously were also incited in Lystra, and Paul was actually stoned, um, and they thought he was actually dead uh, when they went to retrieve him. So, again, just another indication of the nature of this journey was it was filled with a lot of, of moments and periods of great celebration as the gospel was going forth and as the Lord was bringing to himself people both from uh, Judaism as well as from Gentile pagan worship. Um, and so the gospel was having its effect, but it was also arduous in the sense of, its, of its, the time and the investment and the difficulty of travel. And then that's compounded by these periods of rejection and resistance and persecution and false accusation and, and all the like that went along with that. Uh, we saw how uh, they encouraged the believers. That was principally why they went back through uh, and stopped in some of these other places again. They wanted to continue to encourage them, encourage them to persevere. Um, they even said, the Apostle Paul says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this, this recognition and part of the sort of encouragement and instruction to these believers that, that persecution is going to be part of uh, the trial that they will have to endure as those who are followers of Christ. Um, they also appointed elders, another key factor, another key point that took place on this journey. It wasn't the kind of situation where they went through these towns and just sort of presented the gospel and got people stirred up either uh, to want to follow Christ or to want to kill them, and then they blow out of town. There was a, a concerted effort to build the church uh, or, or to be used by Christ, I should say, more specifically, for his church to be built through them. There, there was an, an intended uh, effort to make sure that, that faithful leaders were raised up and that these churches would have the right kind of teaching and encouragement um, so that they could sustain and endure and persevere through whatever Trials may come. Well, they find their way back to Antioch, and when you get to the end of chapter 14, it says they arrived and gathered the church together there at Antioch, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So, again, another sort of picture of the the nature of this church at Antioch, where they come off of this very significant tour of all these different places, these different cities and regions, and they they were taking the gospel and the message of Christ and salvation through Christ to, to all these people, both Jew and Gentile alike, and yet they come back to Antioch, which was their sending church that commissioned them and sent them out, and they came with a full report. Um, so that sense of, of connectedness to that, that local church there in Antioch remained, and, uh, and the, the sense of accountability and, and the desire to encourage those believers there at Antioch who had prayed for them and who had faithfully uh, commissioned them and sent them out and entrusted them with this ministry. They came back and provided a report, a very encouraging report, of how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Um, You know, it's interesting to note that Luke, uh, obviously we don't know what all was reported here. I mean, Luke is obviously summarizing things. This is not a detailed uh, script of everything that took place or every detail of the report. 
But generally speaking, you know, you can assume that what gets highlighted or emphasized is what's most important and what's left out is what's not necessarily needful. And so it's interesting to note that, um, that Luke does not emphasize all the resistance when he's noting that this summary report that, that uh, Paul and Barnabas give in Antioch when they come back to the, that church, he emphasizes the fact that the door of the gospel is open, that, that the fact that there was resistance and that there was persecution was not the main part of the story. In fact, it's just like Paul said uh, to the believers that he had encouraged in Asia Minor that, that persecution is going to be part of the deal it's, it's as though Luke is acknowledging that reality as well. And so the report is, is emphasizing the fact that the door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles, and this is cause for great celebration and great rejoicing. And then that last sentence there, it says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So we know that once they return to Antioch, there is some meaningful period of time that is spent there in Antioch. In other words, it's not uh, just a stop-off uh, point for them, but the the ministry in the, that local church um, continues once they come back um, to Antioch. And of course, this leads us into Acts chapter 15, which Acts chapter 15 represents another major pivotal moment in both the, the account of Luke uh, and the history of the, the early church in Acts, but more importantly, in the, in the history of the church at large um, and the really the the, the primacy and clarity of the gospel. When you come to Acts chapter 15, this is a section that's often referred to as the Jerusalem Council, um, where there is a a major, major dispute of significant import that has to be dealt with and and reconciled and and worked through, if you will. Um, And this takes place in, in Acts chapter 15. So let's turn to Acts chapter 15, and uh, let's just kind of get this this whole context in our minds, and then we'll sort of work through at least a portion of it together today, and um, probably finish up this next week. Just Acts chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 1. Again, knowing that Paul and Barnabas are now back in Antioch, and they're engaged in in ministry. Um, It's also the time, this period of time in Antioch, in which uh, it's believe that that's when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, the, the book of Galatians, to the Galatian believers there. So you have this, a lot of, of things that are centering around this particular um, encounter or this particular dispute, if you will, that's, that's being dealt with in, in Acts chapter 15. Uh, and you have Galatians as sort of more backdrop to, to that dispute. It says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15, But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I love Luke's writing there, had no small dissension and debate with them. That means that it was an intense dispute. That's what that means. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being... Sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And we'll start there. We'll stop there for a moment. So here you have this this dispute that sort of unfolds and has to be dealt with by the leaders and the elders and the apostles who gathered there in Jerusalem. Now, the the nature of the dispute really centers, or we get a sense of the dispute at least, um, in the first five verses uh, there in Acts chapter 15. And it's interesting to note that you have sort of two different parties um, possibly the same party, but possibly some, some differences that might be noted here. You have, first of all, uh, in verse 1, but some men came down from Judea. Uh, down from Judea, obviously headed north, but coming down off the plateau from Judea, Jerusalem, down, and then heading north up to Antioch. You have these men who come from Jerusalem, and they begin to teach, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then, you have this other identification by Luke. Uh, once, once Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, uh, and they're met, they're met uh, uh, gladly and openly by the believers there and the, the apostles there, but you have this reference um, in verse 5 where it says, uh, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So it's almost as though Luke is drawing some kind of distinction between these two groups. It's not absolutely 100% clear, but there seems to be some distinction. He identifies the ones that go to Antioch as just men of Judea, but he identifies these who are gathered there in Jerusalem as believers who are of the party of the Pharisees. A little bit of a distinction in that identification. Although... They're sort of sharing in the same sort of message or the same sort of doctrinal position, the same sort of uh, misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel. This is an interesting note there that it's possible that you have those in this mix 
who are basically promoting um, salvation through Judaism to this new Christian sect of Judaism, that you can't abandon Judaism. So those Gentiles that are coming in have to convert, convert to Judaism because salvation comes through Judaism, through circ- circumcision, through following the law of Moses. But then you have others, possibly, is, is, the, is the indication here. For example, those who are of the party of the Pharisees, those who were actually Pharisees and a, and a part of that sect that we read about all throughout the Gospels who were antagonistic to Christ, who actually came to faith in Christ, and yet still had this understanding, this misunderstanding, I should say, of the nature of the gospel and the nature of practice and worship upon salvation that would necessarily entail adopting the worship of Judaism. It's a very subtle difference. And I, I, Shane, do you have any insight there in terms of the, the background on that? It just seems like it's a, it's a possibility to distinguish between believers who are holding on to Judaistic practice as a priority for those who are true, truly saved, and men from Judea who come down and are basically pre- presenting a completely different gospel or a completely different means of salvation. It's just an interesting thing to, to kind of identify. And you have some references that might sort of support this because you, you have... This dispute, this is not something that just bubbled up right there in Antioch, you know, here in the, these, you know, a few days before Paul and Barnabas head down to Jerusalem, that this dispute bubbled up. I mean, this is something that was building. In fact, it's kind of an understandable dispute. This, the fact that this is happening is somewhat understandable. Why would I say that this is an understandable dispute based upon what we've looked at so far in this move of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth? Why would this be an understandable dispute that would emerge? You're having to pry away from the old practices and people don't like change. Okay. You know, they're steeped in this, and everything, everything in Judaism sort of uh, centers on the temple mm-hmm. in, in Jerusalem. And, they, you know, a Jewish friend of mine, I asked him one time, how come you don't still do the animal sacrifices? He's you can't practice Judaism without the temple fully. Right. You can't practice. Right. So, you know, as we discussed before, 40 years after Pentecost, God wiped out yep. the temple using the Romans. Right. And today, that seal of the mosque is right there. You're not going to build it. Yeah. You know, you're not going to build a temple here. Get over it. Think, yeah. you know, <laughs> look for your saviors already come. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there's there, the the nature of what was what was a reality in that day and time for the for the Jewish people, their understanding of their own faith, their their the misunderstanding of how one is made right with God through means of following the law that they couldn't follow ultimately, and they knew it, but still that belief, that understanding, that misunderstanding persisted. Um, but you can also have some empathy for the difficulty here, because it's not as though uh, the entirety of the New Testament and all the doctrines that were sort of articulated more clearly through the epistles and the, and, and the writers of the apostles, I mean, they didn't have all of this. And so there's this developing understanding of what, what this means 
how do you how do you bring pagans who before would be inclined to worship the apostles because they healed someone as though they're Zeus and Hermes? I mean, we're talking out and out, no connection to Judaism whatsoever. In fact, complete pagan worship, uh, really steeped in sensuality as a as a as a, a means of worship and and sort of really a debauched view of, of religious practice. How do you bring that kind of believer who has been inculcated in that kind of spiritual or, or religious world into a more Judaistic world that's in accordance with following the law and all the prescriptions of the law? Think about the, the, the way that uh, young people were, were taught, I mean, from the time of their youth on up. The, the, the law of the Lord and, and following these, these very strict prescriptions and all the dietary laws and all the festivals and celebrations. I mean, this was a comprehensive, from childhood up, way of living and way of seeing things. And now you've got this whole other group of people who were known and who were observed, but now we're somehow supposed to be kind of on the same team? That's, that's kind of mind-blowing, and that's, that's very difficult to, to reconcile. So... And we know that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. I mean, the Sadducees were, would be resistant to the, the, the message of the gospel just by virtue of the communication about the resurrection of Christ. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. I mean, they, 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 they're those that came to faith in Christ, these Pharisees that came to faith in Christ, and yet had been faithful and committed and zealous for the law all their lives. So it's possible that you have this distinction here between out-and-out false teachers, and in fact, um, in, later on, uh, or actually earlier on in the first missionary journey, I believe in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, you have that reference there of the Jews who are poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. So it's as though you've got, the, there's Jewish people who are, who are, who are bent on on. False teaching, basically, to those who are believers. They're, they're, they're bent on corrupting what is the indications of saving faith on the part of these Gentiles on this first missionary journey. So you have this, this brewing dispute that's taking place, and, and you have this indication that you've got this, this amalgamation of out-and-out, sort of unsaved, unredeemed, false teachers who have motives to just protect their power, protect their, their ideas about what Judaism, the importance of Judaism as a means of salvation, the importance of law-keeping as a means of salvation. They were actually intentionally teaching and distorting the true gospel. But it's possible that you would also have those of, for example, the party of the Pharisees. Luke refers to them as believers who are trying to work this out and are confused or stumbling over over this in some way yes and god really gave us you know the perfect storm of these these two individuals saul of tarsus who was pharisee of pharisees right who absolutely you know was breathing murder right for the for the christians for jews who had turned from turned to christ right and and totally changed him and made him the instrument or the, you know the the apostle to the gentiles right know? But before that, there was, there was this guy that often goes off on a tangent and gets things wrong, Peter, right? And he's the one who brings the Gentiles right. into the fold, and they 
manifest speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit, you know, as a seal. That's without right. Without circumcision. That's right. And so now you have these two together. When they join forces, it's like unmistakable. Yeah, yeah. You, you have, though, the interesting thing about the, the nature of this progress to the Jerusalem Council, where you have Peter, and we'll talk about this probably in more detail next week, who, where Peter stands up, again, who is known as the apostle to the Jews. I mean, that's kind of his, his wheelhouse, but he's the one that's you know, coming in and referring back to his time with Cornelius and that whole affair, and, and using that to kind of help help clarify what the real gospel is and what's really taking place here in this work of God. But before that, there's, there's no shortage of tension between Paul and Peter, right? And we pick up on that in Galatians. Um, actually, turn to Galatians really quickly, and let's just get our, 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 a sense of what this looked like. Um, Galatians chapter 2. This is what I mean by there's this, there's a, it's an understandable dispute, but it's also a building dispute. This thing's brewing, and it's, 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 it's building this sort of this head of steam that you know at some point it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of blow up. So you have, um, and, and this gives you, this, this, the way that, that Paul describes this, this dispute between he and Peter, it really gives you an indication of the, the real-time difficulty of this. That sometimes when we, when we study Scripture, and we, particularly when we're studying sort of the narrative pieces of Scripture, and we're reading about the people who are doing these things and living these lives and speaking and teaching in these environments, um, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to really um, identify with the real nature of what was going on in real time for them. But this particular part of uh, Galatians gives us a real snapshot that this was... This was day-by-day, real-time, social tension that was mixed into here. How do we live life together was kind of a, a question that was being confronted in a certain way. So let's look at this, verse, uh, verse um, 11 of chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So the scene here is that Peter is in Antioch. And again, Antioch is this thriving church made up predominantly of Gentiles. And Peter is just yucking it up with the Gentiles, eating with them, enjoying fellowship with them, as he should. And in fact, he has this divine indication that this is the right thing by this whole encounter with Cornelius, where he has this vision that happens three times, and then he goes to Cornelius, and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon them, as Phil was saying, and in like manner as he did at Pentecost. I mean, he's got the most vivid examples in his own experience to know that this is right and okay and approved by God, that we should eat together and have fellowship together, and that I should never refer to these Gentiles as common or unclean. Is what he learned, is what he, what he acknowledged, even to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So here he is, and he's, he's feeling social peer pressure. This is Peter, right? An apostle, the one who walked on water, the one who preached the sermon at Pentecost that led to 3,000 being added to the church that day. And here he is, 
feeling peer pressure to not want to associate with the Gentiles as he had previously done when the party of the circumcision, those that would argue for, you, you, there's, there's a separation still that needs to be in place. Not only that, but he went so far as to even separate himself from these people, like draw clear lines of distinction from these believers who he had just previously been fellowshipping with, ministering with, probably teaching and instructing. And he go, it goes so far as to tell us that he, if you continue on, look at, look at that, what else happens. It says that he was fearing the circumcision party in the verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So now he's leading the other Jews who had come to a sense of comfort and understanding, and apparently there was some fellowship that was being enjoyed amongst Jew and Gentile in Antioch. So now there's this separation that's taking place as they follow Peter's lead, and it gets even more pronounced than that because it says that, that along with him, these, these Jews acted hypocritically so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, the one who went with Paul on the first missionary journey and saw the gospel being received by the Gentiles in mass. So this particular dispute, this particular issue, this matter of the gospel versus salvation by something that we do, salvation by works of any kind, pick your religious system, pick your false doctrine, it's, it's the same it's the same thing. It's just sort of different shades. This is at the core of, of fallen flesh turmoil all the time. We are inclined toward legalism. Even those who would say they are the most libertine by nature, all that happens with people who claim to be way more loose in their social mores and their sense of morality All they do is develop a whole different code that if you violate that code, you're the evil one. Now, we see this happening over and over again today in our culture. There is a new form of legalism that's at work, and it's not the kind of legalism that we would typically associate with legalism. When we think of legalism, we go to the the New Testament, and we look at the Pharisees, and we think of these these people who were very strict to the law, very, very outwardly moral, wanting to have a reputation of high moral conduct and great respect among the people. No, now we have a new form of legalism that is characterized by complete immorality and by things that completely contradict our sensibilities about what is true and what is right. But if you violate that, then guess what? You're the evil one. You're the wicked one. So now it's no longer about ideas of social interaction and social norms and morality It's ideas about tolerance and about what you uh, are are not allowed to say against my preferences. And it's not not just a matter of disagreement. It's a matter of of declaring the opposing person as evil. It's just another form of legalism is all it is. You must adopt our code now. If you don't, you cannot be saved. You cannot be a part of the in-group that's got this right now. It's the same thing over and over and over again. This is the very kind of dispute that plagues the church all throughout church history as well. So it shouldn't be surprising to us in looking back, but looking, looking sort of into the nature of this dispute, you really see the Apostle Paul giving us this glimpse of what took place with Peter in Antioch really highlights the sinister nature of this and how it divides even God's people along lines of of something other than truth. 
very, very damning types of impact here. So this dispute, obviously, was nothing that was sort of new on the scene, and nor was it anything that should have been completely unexpected. So he had to confront him. Here's what he says. He says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Just called out his, his hypocrisy on the spot. Peter was obviously enjoying the fellowship with the Gentiles and then decided that he's going to put on airs like it's, it's not appropriate to do that and you have to adopt the practices and dietary practices and ritualistic practices of the Jews in order to, to be right with God. And that was just utter hypocrisy, and the Apostle Paul has to call him out for that. So this, this, is, this takes place prior to the Jerusalem Council, because what you see at the Jerusalem Council is you see Peter in complete lockstep with the truth at this point. But this gives you an indication that this was not some small dispute. This was not some sudden dispute. That This is something that you can kind of understand when you think about the context of how the gospel was being um, uh, communicated to the Jews in the synagogues and then to the Gentiles as the, as the Apostle Paul went throughout the known world at that time and the Jewish believers trying to sort out what worship and practice and fellowship with pagans should look like and, and what, what did apply from Old Testament law and practice and worship and what didn't apply. I mean, this is a, a, very, significant, um, a very significant moment in the history of the church and yet it's reflective of the, the timeless um, tendency that we have toward legalism, toward needing to be able to do something that's really rooted in our own pride, to be able to do something that we can then point to to say we have done something that is pleasing to God. It's, that's what's at the core of it. It's not this idea that we, we, we ha- out, of, out of the goodness of our hearts, we want to do honorable things and live in such a way so that it's pleasing to the Lord. No, it's that we want to do things so that we can seen by, be seen by others and seen by God as to how good we actually are and how much we deserve God's favor and God's grace. That's a, that's a very clear distinction. Well, obviously, we already kind of alluded to this, but you see in Acts chapter 15, going back to our text, you see in Acts chapter 15 that, and you, you see this obviously from the, the account in Galatians, that this was clearly a very intense dispute. In verse 2, we referenced it, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, they went up uh, to Jerusalem. This, was, um, this, this bubbled out there in Antioch in such a way that it, was, it led to no small dissension, no small dispute, and there was a level of intensity that was associated with this. You see this really reflected again in Galatians. We don't have to necessarily go there, but you see how, how exercised the Apostle Paul is over the damning nature of this doctrine and how it totally con- contradicts what he knows to be true about the true nature of the gospel. And Phil was alluding to this. As you think about the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, if anyone would have wanted to claim some type of rite or ritual as part and parcel to salvation, it would have been the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul recognized, as all who really truly come to faith in Christ must recognize, that in spite 
of all my works, in spite of my zeal for the law, in spite of my passion as one who wants to please and honor God, so I think, in spite of all that, God saved me by grace. In spite of all that. And Paul knew that all too well. But his language and his passion in Galatians kind of, kind of gives you an indication of how heated and intense this dispute was. Verse 6 of chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are ter- turning to a different gospel. He goes on to talk about how do not listen to any other gospel other than the one delivered by you. After he, after he articulates his his where the gospel actually came from, from Christ himself. Um, he said, even if we, in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. This was an intense, intense dispute. This is what's coming out of the heart of the Apostle Paul before he goes up to Jerusalem. So you can only imagine what the nature, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall when, those, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dispute with those in Antioch? Um, what kind of conversation that took place there. Again, more and more of this kind of language you see um, in addition to uh, the, uh, the confrontation with Cephas. You go to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He is exercised uh, in a significant way. So again, this dispute was a, a understandable dispute. It was a building dispute, and it was a very, very intense dispute. Fortunately, uh, the dispute was discussed and debated. Now, when you get to the resolution elements of the dispute, if you look in Acts chapter 15 really quickly before we close, and we'll pick up here uh, again next week, Something I just want to highlight, you have this, this scene that unfolds where Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they're greeted uh, warmly, they're welcomed warmly into the fellowship, and then you have this raising of this question there in verse 5 where it says, as we read before, where, um, find verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Then you have verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. I think this is an important thing to note. Um, a couple of things to note here. Um, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not a problem for churches to have to deal with disputes. It's not a problem for believers to have to deal with disputes among believers. Um, in fact, we, we've already seen accounts of that in, in Acts, that we go from this period of time early on, where in Acts 2, uh, verse 42 and following, you almost have this utopic view of this church, and it kind of sets in your mind, and we have lots of people that want to say, we need to get back to that particular vision of the church because it seems like it's just this environment where everybody's sharing in, in one another's possessions and everyone's getting along and enjoying the fellowship. And that generally 
is, is, is in principle the way that we should be. We should be enjoying the fellowship and, and, and the, the goodness of God in our midst as we gather together. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are going to be disputes that we encounter. And so the question is not, how do we avoid those disputes? Nor is it, what can we do to make the dispute go away as quickly as possible? It's, how do we handle this in an appropriate way that honors the Lord? And I think that you have, at least in principle, a bit of an example here. You have this question, this issue raised, and again, this is not in isolation. This is something that's been building. There's been this controversy that's been developing and brewing over some period of time, and and, and it gets raised in a pointed way here in this moment. And it just says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, and he went on with his presentation. The point here is that there, there was a, an indication that the, that the those who were called upon and whose responsibility it was to deal with this matter sort of set away to deliberate and to discuss and to debate the matter in a setting that was appropriate for the occasion. And what oftentimes can happen, this to me is just a point of real simple wisdom for us, is that we need to recognize the time and place of things when there are disputes. And that there are times when it's not appropriate for us to unfurl our disagreement in an open forum in such a way that it, it only can potentially escalate the volatility of the dispute. We have an example here of something that was not just foundational to the solid ground of the church or that was important to maintain good fellowship among believers, We have a seminal doctrinal dispute that goes at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. What is the gospel? And yet you have this wonderful sort of indication that they came apart, they they came away to deal with this matter as opposed to allowing it to go on and explode into something that just divides and creates factions um, unnecessarily. So I think that that's just a really um, important point to, to be reminded of and how we actually deal with disputes amongst one another and as churches um, that we, we recognize that there's time and place and there's appropriate ways to actually engage in dealing with discord and dispute. And we need to be cautioned by, um, by the heat that can be generated in these disputes that might compel us to engage in some type of effort toward resolution in an inappropriate way or in an inappropriate setting that wisdom should guide us in, in our approach to resolving these disputes, even as it relates to time and place. That's an important principle for us to remember. Well, next time we'll pick this up. We'll look more specifically at, at the, the three different um, communications that take place. You have Peter standing up and providing the most extensive argument um, for and defense, really, of the gospel. And then you have uh, Paul and Barnabas sort of weighing in by virtue of testimony of what God had done, what they had seen God do uh, on their travels. And then you finally have James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, standing up with kind of articulating the final resolution of the matter. And we'll, we'll cover that next week. Any final thoughts or comments before we dismiss in prayer? Just a question. Mm-hmm. Do you know why Peter is disappears after the Jerusalem Council and never is mentioned again in the book of Acts? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can answer that specifically other than what, ha- what you see happening historically is the diminishment of um, the church in Jerusalem. You have uh, mounting um, political 
turmoil that's occurring in Jerusalem. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting on the downhill slope toward the, the, the invasion of Titus and, and, and the destruction of the temple. So, um, I, but I don't, I don't, Shane, do you have any historical? Well, people think that the book of Acts was written as a legal brief to support Paul in his trial in Rome. So it would make sense that as the document went along, the focus becomes more and more on Paul. Not so much because Peter was insignificant, but because the purpose of the book was really aimed at supporting Paul. Yeah. Yeah, so from, yeah, from the standpoint of the historical narrative, that would, that would be one, one way to look at it. Because you know, obviously you hear from Peter in, in his epistles, um, but from the standpoint of the flow of history as it's recorded by Luke, it definitely, this, the focus is definitely turned toward Paul. Yeah. So at this point in church history, where do you think James is at, theologically speaking, with his understanding of um, the doctrine of justification by faith? Um, I, all I can go on is what he says in Acts chapter 15 in that he agrees with Peter and Paul and Barnabas. So I don't know if that was a process of him hearing the arguments. Maybe he was on the fence. I, I don't know. But, um, but he obviously, his, his, his re- the resolution that he articulates with this letter is in agreement with um, Salvation by faith alone in Christ. Yeah, that's what I was interesting in Galatians uh, two twelve, where it says, "For certain men came from James." For, uh, excuse me. For before certain men came from James. Yeah. That almost seems to suggest that they had the authority of James. Like yeah, and I've, I've, there's a, there's some different opinions on that. Um, some would argue that that is just a reference to the fact that they came. They came from the church in Jerusalem, but not necessarily the, the, that their message, their teaching was commissioned by James particularly, but it could be. I mean, it's, it, we don't have anything definitive in terms of, of what that might have been like, but it's certainly not necessary that that's the case. But we don't know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews, and there's True. those who say that it was James. <coughs> so if he held to the party of the circumcision by the time... The book of Hebrews was written, which was a year before the temple was destroyed. You know, he'd come full circle over mm-hmm. to the side with Peter. And yeah, Paul. yeah. And you would think that we'd have more. You know, we'd have we'd have more biblical reference to to that point of tension or dispute if it persisted in some way, because that would have been big. Sure, absolutely. So, but you know, I, I wasn't. I'm not the Holy Spirit inspiring scripture at that time, so I'm not exactly sure what, you know, what, what, what all that means. So, All right. Well, thank you. Uh, let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.